I thought I've been always used to plug-in mics. Since the very first time you said to me, Graham, use a plug-in mic. Because Graham always does what he's told. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh one of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as you may know, Adventure Rider Radio and ARR Raw is powered by some ads and your donations. And we really appreciate your donations because we couldn't do it without your help. So we have a donation page set up at www.adventureriderradio.com and you can donate any amount, but anything $10 or more is going to get you an ARR motorcycle sticker sent back at you as our, a token of our appreciation. And I think $50 or more is get you some stickers as well as a mention on this show right here, right now. And um, that's if you want it. Of course, you can opt out as well. So for this month, we've had some real generous listeners who have donated $50 or more, and I, I want to give a shout out to them. So I want to give a shout out to this group of people, Shane Gulneys. I hope I got your name right, Shane, if I didn't let me know. Um, Shane Gulneys, James Snyder, Glenn Jackson, Gregory Young, Nathan Johnson, Tim Piper, and Tim, you've been a supporter of the show for a long time now. Um, we appreciate that. And Brian Connolly. Thank you all. Just fabulous. It really makes a huge difference to us each month to get donations like these. So, and of course, if if you donate a smaller amount, any amount, any amount you donate, both Elizabeth and I are very grateful for any size donation toward the show. So thank you all. Here is ARR Raw for May. I'm sitting in my pajamas. No, that's not how I'm going to start. <laughs> From the Canoe West Media Studio. <laughs> From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of beautiful Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it is May 2017, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. Now, normally to record raw, it's about noontime in the Pacific where I am, uh, which is around 8 a.m. for the Rixes in Australia. And it's normally getting late for Gramfield, 10 p.m.-ish, somewhere around there. And Sam in the UK about 8 p.m. And Grant is in the same time zone as me. But we've swapped things all around for a couple of different things. One, to, to accommodate the daylight savings uh, switch out of daylight savings for Australia and into it from Canada. That really sets us apart a ways. And of course, Graham Field and his constant moaning about recording too late at night. So, <laughs> And Sam, of course, right now, Sam is even in the UK. He's in the US. So this could be a completely different show tonight. So we're just going to see how this goes along. I'm Jim Martin. And today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by our five regular Overland co-hosts, Shirley Hardy-Ricks in Australia. Shirley, good afternoon. Good. Oh, no, it's good afternoon and a glorious autumn afternoon it is here in central Victoria. It's just beautiful and it's so nice to be talking to you and have been awake for more than five minutes. <laughs> I always picture you guys sitting there bleary-eyed and, and in desperate need of a coffee. And that's exactly how it is, uh, <laughs> but not today. Sure. Can you pass me a beer, please? <laughs> and Brian <laughs> is, right, is right beside Shirley. Brian, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jim. Good afternoon, guys. We missed hey, you last good night. Afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> 
You, you weren't in there last month, were you? No, no, no. I was up in uh, about 500 kilometres away um, looking after my sick mum. So um, yeah, life takes a different turn. But uh, And I'm heading up there on Saturday, but I'll be riding the bike this time. I need a good ride. So a 1,000K uh, round trip should just about um, be good for the soul, I think. Absolutely. How's the new house working out? Oh, great. Really good. Uh, my uh, three-bay garage has got a three-bike trailer in it, uh, four motorcycles at the moment and a skeleton of another one and two more to come in and uh, one more that um, a mate of mine is going to purchase for me. I haven't told you that, sure. Uh, well, you, see, you, you still have quite a bit of room then. I see you've got some, some buying to do. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I need, I need I need a trail bike. You know, we went for a beautiful walk today <laughs> along a, an old uh, trail, and I'm thinking, oh, this would be pretty good on a little trail bike. This would be great. So, um, yeah, I think I need one. Sure, I come think, on. I don't think the council wants you riding a motorbike up there. <laughs> we'll have this domestic later on. <laughs> Grant, <laughs> don't I seem to remember that? Sorry, can yeah. I just interrupt for a second? Because don't, don't I seem to remember that um, Brian and Shirley have bought a house where. The garage is bigger than the house. It's nearly <laughs> nearly bigger than the house, Sam. And, uh, yeah. There's still Pretty room close. in the garage. And for the first time in so many years, my car actually has a garage now instead of living in the driveway yeah. is that because important? the garage is full of bikes. It is for me and my car. <laughs> you mean you're sharing the three-car garage with the motorcycles in the car? Oh, no, no, no. We no, have no, a two-car no. garage attached to the house and a three-bay car, three garage shed up at the back of the block. So, Okay, I'm green with envy. <laughs> you can all come and stay and you won't even bump into each other. It's fantastic. <laughs> Grant Johnson, you are in the same time zone as I am, and, and you're managing to stay awake, all right? Are you normally up this time? Um, yeah, I'm normally actually technically a late, late person. You know, I'll, I'll work till one o'clock in the morning quite often just that, because that that's why the nine, is, the nine o'clock mess up this morning was too much for the you. The nine right? o'clock in the morning is <laughs> not good. No, that's, that's a good time to get up. You should well, see and, my mother. And on the West Coast, <laughs> she we're gets fine. up at 11. She gets up at 11. What time do you get up at? Uh, I get up about nine. Wow. But I work till one. Right. You, you can always back that up a bit, get up earlier and not work as late. No, no. It's something to do with the dark and the light and all that kind of stuff. I like, I like working in the dark. Huh. A little bit of owl in me. I feel like I work in the dark a little bit, but that isn't by design. Uh, anyway, on to <laughs> Sam Manicom, who is in a time zone. I, I don't know where you are, Sam. You're in, you're in Las Vegas? I certainly am. Top of the evening, everybody. Um, and I'm laughing about being here because um, when Birgit and I were on the big trip, we arrived in the city and took one look at it and rode straight out of it again. And actually, I've always kicked myself for not having come back and um, done it justice. Um, because I think, well, how can you slag something off if you actually really don't know what it's about? So that's one of the reasons that I'm back here. But I'm also here for two other reasons. And the first one is because Graham has made so many comments about um, having the time change. And I kind of like my 8, 9 p.m. slot. So I've had to come to a different continent so I can keep the same time slot. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's great that, I mean, Shania Twain played there for a long time, and, and I know there's been tons of others. It's nice they finally got you. <laughs> yeah, I'm the poor guy walking around on the street. <laughs> but um, one of the other reasons that I'm laughing is because, uh, you know, I don't use a sat-nav very often, but when I want to find my way into a city that I don't know, then um, I plug it in. 
And uh, for the few miles running out to Las Vegas, my sat-nav had decided that it was going to guide me to, um, in 10 miles, you will reach LAS Vegas. In eight miles, you will come to a turning on the right, which will take you to LAS Vegas. It just could not get Las Vegas right at all. Um, but um, anyway, so it's all good here, and it's really nice to be back. And I'm staying with um, a super guy called Rob, um, who many people on Facebook will know because he's moderator of one of the Facebook pages and so on. And, um, yeah, full-on adventure motorcycle rider and overlander. So it's, uh, it's brilliant to be spending time with him. Seems like a good place. Oh, to- and um, one other thing. He's just fed me an absolutely huge steak, so now I know I'm in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Good old beef. And Graham Field, of course, is bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, first thing in the morning, very close to Sofia in, in uh, I want to say Brazil. It, it's Bulgaria, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well remembered. Yes, spoke area. And uh, yeah, yeah, I got them all. I got the breakfast show spot. Lucky me. <laughs> <laughs> What's the weather like in Sofia this morning? Uh, I don't know, Jim, because I don't live in Sofia. <laughs> but where I live, about two and a half hours away, it's rainy and cloudy and not very nice. Oh. But um, I got myself a nice, healthy tomato juice to drink for the show. Unfortunately, I didn't quite have enough tomato juice, so I topped it up with some Worcester sauce and Tabasco, and there was still some room, so I poured a little bit of vodka in there. <laughs> oh, now you're talking. Hey. Hey, hang on a second. You- this, is, this is 9 o'clock in the morning. No, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. I can do whatever I want to do. Oh. <laughs> you sure can. No one wrote that rule book. As long as you're not in pants and I saw you in on Facebook. Oh, they were a worry, weren't they? My oh, goodness, everybody oh, around had to have sunglasses on. Statement. Yeah. They were, I kind of funny. They were stylish, but you were very brave going outside in them, I've got to say. Yeah, well, I'm trying to <laughs> trying to bring a little bit of Thailand beach to Bulgaria. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our topic... For today, at least to kick things off, is camping, and I think most of us enjoy what's called wild camping, or, you know, I think there's a bunch of different terms for it. Basically, it's just camping for free whenever you can, um, often uh, in the wilderness, but not always, right? So we're going to talk about um, finding our camp spots, how to decide whether where you're going to camp. First of all, when we're traveling, what do you guys do for planning your campsites? Um, in other words, starting off right at the start, are you planning in advance and saying, I'm going to stay in this area? How do you do it? Graham, let's start with you. Well, an, an organized campsite, a proper campsite, and when I get one is probably determined by when I last had a shower. And <laughs> so... <laughs> if I haven't had a, a river uh, to bathe in or a hotel in the last few days, you, um, or I need just need to do some laundry because uh, I'm on the third pair of underwear and things are getting critical, then I need a proper campsite. Campsites are a good in-between because it's cheaper than a hotel, but you've still got the security, which you wouldn't have if you were wild camping. So I will sleep better in a campsite because I'm not worried about someone tearing up in the middle of the night, pinching a bike or bum raping me or anything nasty like that so i've got uh, so the campsite's good plus it's got facilities you've probably got some wi-fi and everything so i suppose i do have when i get up in the morning i think well tonight it'd be kind of nice to go for a campsite and of course the weather is weather dependent as well if you're riding through a nice day um so yeah to a, to a degree i suppose uh 
have, choosing to have a campsite is predetermined. But ultimately, unless you've really done your research, you don't really know what's going to be lying ahead of you. And um, and how well campsites are, are signposted and, and, and whether you can just spontaneously find one. Do you find campsites everywhere you go? I've, yeah, not always when I want to, but I, well, not everywhere. No, I mean, you're not going to find them in India or China or somewhere like that. But um, the yeah, thing I, is, I, that's if what a country... Is it, like, is it a North American thing or just North America, Europe? What, it's probably a more Western thing, I suppose. And, and, and the thing is, when you are in places like India or, or China or Southeast Asia, the guest houses are so cheap and so frequent. Camping is just, you, why would you bother? And uh, there's always the wild camp option. But again, like I think it's illegal to wild camp in China, although I did when I was cycling. And again, in India, there is never, you are never alone. You couldn't, when I was cycling in India, you couldn't even stop for a wee without having a crowd. And then people would just come out of hedges. There is people, it's over a billion people. It's a big country, but there's over a billion population. So to think that you could put up a tent with your bike next to it and have privacy and someone not seeing you is, I think, uh, not very realistic. And uh, so I, and I don't really know why you'd bother. There's guest houses everywhere, so why go through the hassle of the camping? Planning ahead, Grant? Uh, we try and plan ahead. Generally, again, the same thing as uh, Graham, if we need a shower or we need uh, laundry, et cetera, yes, and we're going into or we're going into a city, then we'll definitely take a hotel but, or a camps, campground as well. Wild camping, yeah, there's places where it's good, places like Bolivia, northern Peru. Um, I remember there's some beautiful places to camp. And uh, campsites are they're there, but very, very few. It's somewhat similar to India, only not as bad. Um, trying to find a place for an actual normal campground, uh, it's pretty rare. And they really don't understand. And they're usually pretty pretty bad, too. So wild camping is definitely a much better idea. Just trick is to find a, a good spot to do it. I know I've spent many a time, I spent a couple of hours up and down a couple of roads. Oh, that's not going to work. Oh, that's not going to work. Try another road. Try That's not going to work. It gets... Frustrating at, at times, but with better with GPS now, you can get a much better idea of the terrain and the country ahead of you than when we were doing our main traveling in South America and Europe and Africa. Um, there was no information, so it was really really difficult. It's just it's a lot better now. It's a lot easier, and of course with the internet, if you're looking for a campground, yeah, you can probably find one. Uh, yeah, I'm glad Graham brought that up because um, I started off saying about wild camping, but but yeah, it makes a lot of sense. To for showers and even for security, I never thought about that, Graham. That um, you're sleeping better in a campground it makes sense. You, you probably sleep a lot easier there than than worrying about you know the visitor in the night because it's not yeah. it's well, not not animals that I worry about. It's people. Yeah, it depends well, a lot on where you well, are, what part of the world. In in India, I think yeah, I would. <laughs> you're just not going to get privacy. And the same thing in parts of Africa. I, the number of times I stopped on a road in Africa and figured, right, quick nip into the bushes. No, there's somebody watching. There's always somebody there. Even in pl remote places in Africa, you think, oh, there's nobody here. Oh, yes, there is. They're there and they're all over the place. So you always have this worry when you're wild camping. Is somebody going to come along in the middle of the night? I mean, we never had any issues and most people I've heard of have never had any issues. But there's always that concern. People are your biggest fear, really, more than uh, animals. When we were in Siberia, they, um, the locals advise you not to wild camp 
uh, in the forests off the Trans-Siberian Highway purely because um, it is dangerous and there was a biker murdered there a few years ago camping on, you know, off in the forest just off the side of the road. So, you, you know, um, I'm not a big fan of wild camping. To, I have to say I'm a bit of a sook. I'd prefer to say stay in a campground where I do feel secure. Right. Uh, that's okay. interesting, Shirley, because, um, well, apart from that, the, there is the risk of the Siberian tiger, I suppose. But when I was in Siberia, I did exactly that. I wasn't warned and I did exactly that, camped on, because it's just a three-day uh, like endless ride uh, to get to Vladivostok when you're on the Trans-Siberian, and you'd I, I would find like old quarries and stuff to to camp in, and that I was going to bring this up later, but was one of my scariest camping experiences. It was freezing cold. I left it too late in the year, and I had a <laughs> as we talked about in the last session, I had a runny bum because I'd eaten a bad tomato, and uh, I was and in the night there was something outside my tent. And I was wrapped up so, because it was so cold, I was wrapped up with my sleeping bag like I was mummified. And I had to see what it was because I wanted to know what was going to kill me. And by the time I'd unzipped my sleeping bag, unzipped my tent, got myself free and looked outside, and it's pitch black. There was nothing, nothing to be seen. And with the, with the sound of the zippers and me rustling around in the sleeping bag, I hadn't been able to hear footsteps leaving because of the own noise I was making. I will never know what was outside, but there was something big and heavy-footed outside. <laughs> so, Probably a bear. If it had been a I don't know what it was. If it had uh, been a, a tiger, you could have made a fortune because they're virtually extinct now, aren't they? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a huge threat, actually. But... <laughs> 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 a, a big Siberian drunk is more yeah, the Yuri. problem. Yeah, Yuri. Yeah, Yuri. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right? Look, when I travel by myself without chill, I, I have wild camped, and uh, you know, I don't mind it, but I'm like everyone else. Um, people are your main concern. I've actually, I, I was forward driving on this particular trip on a route out of, uh, in the, into the scrub, a kilometre or two kilometres off the road through the scrub in the desert and camped out there and um, uh, no problem. But uh, I, I, I quite like that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had been camping with a few mates on the side of the road after some uh, pretty wild times coming back from, from some races. Uh, we hadn't slept for a couple of days and pitched a tent um, down a little side road, woke up in the morning to this – and we're, there's three of us in a, a um, uh, four-person tent, so it was cosy – but um, we could hear noises outside, and I stuck my nose out, and we were camped right beside a paddock, and cows were munching on the guy ropes. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you're awfully quiet. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm always interested in what everybody's got to say, and I promised myself this time I wasn't going to try and talk over the top of everybody because I was really conscious that the last show I got all enthusiastic and did that rather a lot. So I'm being good this time. Okay, time's up, Sam. Um, Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right then. I'll shut up. Um, I mean, the planning, you you, were you started off by talking about planning and so on. And I think a lot depends on, as, as the guys say, about what continent you're in. Um, you know, I, because I'm in the States, I'm thinking about the States. And um, there's lots of amazing wild camping spots here. You don't have to hunt that hard to find them pretty much everywhere you go. 
Um, and as far as the planning is concerned, well, you know, you've got the Bureau of Land Management areas in this country, and it's well worth finding out where, the, where those are so that you can sort of roughly meander in those directions. And if you happen to be in the right area for one, well, it's legal, they're pretty safe, and well, why not stay somewhere that's legal and pretty safe? And Berger and I um, wild camped a lot when we were traveling. Um, and we always followed the, the two, two roads rule. Um, and that is you find a, a fairly remote road, um, a sort of time of day that you'll think about camping. And you head off down that and you find a right or a left turn that's a smaller road that looks even less well used. And you tuck yourself down there and behind some bushes. And we found that so long as we covered up anything reflective, um, and actually put the tent up when it was getting pretty much close to dusk, um, we never really had any problems. I mean, I do remember mornings waking up and finding people standing outside the tent, but they were just curious, you know, who's this park camping in my back garden? And as Grant was saying, it's pretty much everywhere is somebody's back garden, um, mm. you know, even some of the remoter stretches of desert. Um, you can stop and, yeah, within a few minutes, blimey, here's a person. But we just found that we just didn't get any hassle. Um, and we camped in some fairly odd places when I was traveling on my own. I was traveling, um, I was camping in uh, more extreme sorts of places. Um, for example, out of town shopping centers. Um, they're pretty much dead at night time, you know, sort of 10 miles out of town. Who goes there? Um, and I would frequently find a dark corner to um, put my tent up in. Being a dome tent, I could put it up and, you know, without tent pegs. And sometimes if I want to be more more discreet, then I just use the bike cover and put my sleeping bag and sleeping mat on the ground, pull the bike cover over the tent, and I'd climb in underneath that as well and be asleep within seconds. Um, I got moved on by the cops a few times. That's interesting, the shopping center one. That's interesting for tent camping. I mean, that's sort of known in North America for RVers. They'll often go to Walmarts and things like that park in the Walmart, Walmart parking lots. But, you know, sometimes you can put yourself sort of in the middle of everything, like rather than trying to hide, and, and I'm coming up with a, a, a memory I have of camping at a uh, truck stop. And I remember, um, like, there was no place to, I couldn't find a place that night, and, and I'd ridden too late. And I just pulled in and I camped at the truck stop right in the middle of everything. And it's so noisy and there's so many people, it, it felt quite safe. One of the other things I was going to mention is about when it comes to camping is that quite often if you find an ideal spot fairly close to the road, it's usually the spot that everybody's going to find. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You can normally tell by the, the amount road of rubbish that's there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, rubbish yeah. and broken glass. Hey, Graham. Yes. Not yeah. where you want to be rolling your motorbike. Yeah, Let alone like putting your ground sheets. <laughs> Yeah. If you if you find a spot that uh, the, like a lot of the times you'll find that the local kids will use these spots. You know they know they know where the little spot by the river is that's really cool and it's just off the road and it's out of sight. So that's where they party, and that can be a real issue. You got to make sure. Like uh, Sam says, the the two road rule. I like three personally, but <laughs> whatever you can get and as far away as you can get from the road. Uh, I don't even want to be within sight of the road like at all. Yeah. No, I agree. With I remember. I remember the first time I travelled through Bulgaria, long before I lived here, and I was looking for somewhere a wild camp. And there was a nice layby on this mountain pass, so it had a beautiful view. And I thought, oh yeah, this will be all right. And I pulled off there, and I was looking at the ground because the ground will tell you a lot—not just about animals and stuff, but you know, if there's broken vodka bottles, it's a party place. And where I had riches, there was just used condoms all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to camp here. So. Um, <laughs> 
past. It turns out, and I now know because it's commonplace, that a lot of the laybys in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, they have hookers in them. It's, it's, I don't know if it's, if it's legal, but they certainly, you know, they're, they're there. So this lay-by was used by a hooker. <laughs> That's why there were condoms everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't count that. <laughs> Good so in other words, Graham, what you're trying to say is when you're picking your spots, use your eyes, read the signs, and if your senses tingle, don't do it. Well, yeah, Unless she's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she only did the day shift, unfortunately. So. <laughs> Obviously very busy. <laughs> Very busy. It's an interesting thing because they are in a lot of the laybys. I can't drive to the supermarket without seeing about three hookers in the laybys or sex workers, as I think the political correct uh, way to address them is. If I ever talk to one, I'll be sure to call her a sex worker and not a hooker. But the um, the thing is, they um, you, they provoke conversation because if you if you're with someone in the car and you don't comment. It's almost like you're trying to ignore the elephant in the corner. Yet if you do comment, then what exactly do you say? And when I was buying my house and I was being taken by the owners and my translator to the bank to do all the uh, transactions, we passed a hooker in the lay-by and he decided we needed to talk about this. So in Bulgarian, and it was uh, translated for me, he'd said how he was a hunter. And he said, as a hunter, they would staked out uh, uh, in these bushes, yet they could see the road and they could see the lay-by. And he said, and in the hour and a half that they were there, the hooker had had 10 customers. So no wonder the lay-bys are full of condoms. <laughs> We saw quite a few girls working the, the roads when we were in Bulgaria a couple of years ago too. It was quite common to be r riding down the highway and you'd find them sitting on old tyres on the side of the road, um, usually scantily dressed, you know, on their mobile phone, smoking Yeah, cigarette. they are all winter. They were here in the rain with umbrellas. They're there in the winter. We've got a regular one. You can actually see her on Google Street. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So you you actually looked for this, Graham? Did you? Well, no, I can't help but see her. And um, <laughs> and um, it was one freezing cold winter day. She was there. I was on the way to the supermarket, so I bought a coffee and I bought a chocolate bar. And I thought if she's still there on the way back. I'll just stop and give her a coffee and a chocolate bar. And I don't care out. if um, I know my pickup truck <laughs> is going to be spotted. I know my pickup truck is going to be spotted by someone saying, I saw you were stopped in the lay-by. It's like, I don't care. You know, the girl's still human. Anyway, she wasn't there when I came back, so I got myself a coffee and a chocolate bar. But, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're, they're just, I, I don't know. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things I don't understand in this country, and that is one of them. <laughs> I'm just trying to think, is it my job to pull this conversation out of the gutter and back to where we're supposed to be, or, or should I just let this run? It's just no, a no, fact no, no, looking for places to stay for the night it's just an option <laughs> it's just a story about you trying to pay a hooker with chocolates and a, and a drink i mean i, I don't quite get it <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry I'm barter economy barter economy <laughs> Jim, come on, get the phraseology right you, you, you're pulling the conversation out of the lay-by not the gutter <laughs> all right now i'll just get us back on track okay leave it to the grown-up girl in the in the group <laughs> Camping, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but talk about camping in uh, North America. We camped a lot in the national parks in North America, and mm. I used to think it was so funny. You'd see these signs saying, if a bear comes into your campsite, bang your saucepan lids together. 
that would be terrific, I thought, if we had saucepans with lids. And the other option was get into your vehicle and lock the doors. Another <laughs> great piece of advice if we had a vehicle that had doors. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a difficult... I, I can remember banging pots together because I had a cougar wanting to uh, to take a bite out of me, and it did nothing at all. So I'm not totally sold on the, on the pot banging thing. <laughs> Well, I was very disappointed we didn't see a bear that close up except when there was a whole lot of people around and they all got into their vehicles and we got onto the bike and the bear walked past and just sort of looked at the bike as if to say funny-looking car and kept going, so it was cool. (laughs) Well, Sam had mentioned the the two-road thing and Grant had said he likes even three roads. Anyone else have any any sort of tips that you use while you're riding along and looking for a camp spot, how you're going to find a spot in an area that you don't know? There was something that occurred to me when Sam said earlier about covering up the reflective things. Very, very good advice. It's so annoying that they do tents with reflective guide ropes and little things like that, because that's the last thing we want as wild campers. Two, or a little hint is uh, your mirrors, of course, will reflect light. And I either put my socks over my mirrors because they generally need airing anyway, or if your boots are wet, put your boots over the mirrors, which has two things, well, three things. It stops the mirrors from reflecting, it gets some air in your boots, and it stops anything from crawling in your boots because one of the most important things to do, and you will only ever do this once, is, is not check your boots before you put them on in the morning because there can be all sorts of nasty things in there. If they're hanging upside down on your mirrors, nothing's going to crawl in them in the first place. So it keeps the air around your boots, it stops rain going in, it stops creepy crawlies from going in, it stops the uh, the mirrors from reflecting because uh, I, I, when I, if I'm wild camping, I try and like to find a little bit of undulating uh, landscape because if you can just be in a little dip, if people are standing, they'll just look over the top of you. And it's um, it's very important. I think being hidden is one of the most important things. I mean, I won't use my headlight or anything. As we've said in the previous episode, I tend not to cook, so I don't have to worry about stoves or fire smoke or anything. But I think being discreet is probably the biggest number one rule of wild camping. Yep, absolutely agree with you on that one. Stay out of sight. Do you sight. get in late and go out early in the morning? Do, do you guys do that on purpose so that no one knows you camp there? For us, it depends on when we're finding a camping spot because quite often, you know, we'll be sort of two o'clock in the afternoon and we'll go past a, a road that looks likely and because we're not under time schedule pressure, we'll go for a meander down there and see if it's a nice ride and, yeah, we'll find a camping spot and then, right, it's two o'clock in the afternoon, we'll stop, we'll just sit and enjoy the afternoon or go for a walk, but sometimes it'll be a little bit later Um, But we always try and stop early anyway, so uh, we like to find places in daylight. Um, For us, pulling in somewhere in the dark where you can't see and you can't tell what you're putting your bike on and you can't tell whether your side sand's just going to sink straight in the ground or whatever else it is, there are horses chewing and cows chewing your guy lines. Then, yeah, so we like to pull in when it's still plenty of daylight. But quite often, we won't actually put the tent up until the light's almost gone. Mm-hmm. I can yeah. remember pulling into a, a, a roadside pullout and waiting just for that, waiting for dark to come to put up our tent. And as we're sitting there, there's some other people there, and we're thinking, like, "Come on, go, go! They're they're going to go eventually." It turns out these two other people were doing the exact same thing we were. They were waiting until it got dark, <laughs> Classic. and they're waiting for us to leave. So we all camped there that night. <laughs> we even got to know the yeah. neighbors a little bit. Well, that works we, out pretty um, good. Can't we remember. were forced to um, camp in Pakistan 
oh, on the yeah. side of the road one night we got stuck. Um, foreigners weren't allowed to ride or travel on the roads at night and we were with a couple in a four-wheel drive so we headed off into the into the scrub on the side of the road and and uh, the four of us slept together on the side of the road and had something to eat without lighting fires and everything. But we should, needn't have worried. No one was going to come within cooey of us as we discovered when the sun came up in the morning we were parked right at the edge of the cemetery. Mm. Good spot. Yeah, in the cemetery I've in cemeteries before. They're good. Yes, yeah, they are. Good. I agree. We camped at uh, Rabbit Flat, which is a place right in the middle of um, Australia. On, on the, the desert, ten, on the, the Tanami Tanami track, yeah, and um, we, we pulled in nice and early. And we thought, yeah, we'll get ourselves a nice little camp spot in this um, little wayside area, and um, uh, we found a nice tree and we set ourselves up and we're sitting down having a quiet dinner, lit the fire, and next thing a tourist bus came in, where they disgorge about fifty people with individual tents, and not didn't pull away from us, pulled right next to us. And then set up his camp kitchen with his blazing lights and they all sat around drinking and playing games and why the hell they couldn't move at least 100 yards away. Or to another state. In the middle of (laughs) Christ's sake. It's bizarre that people do that. It happens all the time, doesn't it? It's almost like human beings have safety in numbers. Yeah. But, hey, (laughs) it's really annoying, isn't it? They're sheep. They want to crowd together for safety because there's a wild animal out there and it's going to eat them. So the closer they are to somebody else, the better. And they the all do wild- it. Everybody does it. It drives me insane. They're at risk of the wild animal, Ricks. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, we've, we've cooked a meal. And this, this is the other thing. Um, dingoes out in the, the wilds of Australia, they smell for miles and we could hear them yapping and we were actually cooking a, a nice piece of meat over the star, over the fire. And the dingoes come in towards you, wild animals, and they sit just on the edge of the light and watch you mm-hmm. and on their haunches. When we woke in the morning around the back of our tent, there was dingo prints right around the back, wasn't there, Shirley? About six inches away from our head. Just as well we didn't keep the leftover lamb in our tent. Uh, no. <laughs> would, would a dingo attack you then? Well, um, oh. I think you should ask uh, the Chamberlains, the family whose baby was taken by a dingo out of at the tent. Ayers Rock. Out of the tent. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, look, Meryl yes. Streep, you've seen the movie? Oh, don't talk about it. That is the worst Australian accent ever. <laughs> oh, was that the very good? The, the, the dingoes take your baby. <laughs> a dingo's got oh. my baby. Oh, it's terrible, terrible, terrible. But um, dingoes have been known to attack. And uh, oh, yeah. on the desert, we were talking to a ranger on the Simpson Desert, and he said, if you feed the dingoes, we have to shoot them because they then become too... Um, Carefree of getting close into the camps to try and get food off people. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, look, they're not a risk if you keep them at arm's length. You've got to take everything with you too, you know. You've got to, you can't bury stuff, you can't burn it. You have to take everything out uh, because they will spawn and dig it up and they will then follow uh, our campers to other campsites. So um, it's one of the rules of the outback, really. Back to what we were saying about planning for camping. Um, when you're when you're looking for a spot, do you plan in advance, like maybe to stop on the far side of a town in some places? I, m- I remember someone saying something about that. Um, or before you get into the town, are, are there any sort of safety precautions you guys followed for that sort of thing? 
I guess mm. the after or before a town depends which direction you're going, Jim. So that could be a bit problematic. Well, I think this had to. Do, I think this had to do with people knowing you were there. You, you go through a small town or village, and they and they know you're there. And then if if you keep on riding. Uh, I don't know. There was there was some sort of analogy that I can't really remember whether it was I can't remember whether it was good to stop before or after, but, but there definitely was a better one. It doesn't. You definitely don't want the little town to know where that you're stopping yeah. in half an hour down the road or 15 and, minutes down the road. That's bad. We, so you want to we stop were, before. We were in Colombia and we were advised by the police not to stay in a town one night because the locals had seen us at the ATM yeah. getting getting cash out, and the police just said to us, "Go to the next town because." You are so obvious. You are so foreign with your big bike, and they know you have money. Yeah. You take that advice yeah. from locals. Yeah, we we tend to get get money and then leave town. Yeah. And do anything, any buying, shopping, etc., and then leave town. Mm-hmm. The farther you are away from any source of uh, people knowing what you've got and paying attention to you, the better. Yeah, I mean, we would do exactly the same thing, thing, Grant, and it made sense to do it because, um, you know, also as when you're buying food, well, do you want to leave, if you're running out of food, do you want to leave it until the end of the day when you may not find any anyway? So buy your food earlier in the day and then cruise on and, as you say, just don't stay where you've been spending money because people do The other side of that is if you are in a town late afternoon, early evening, and inevitably you're going to attract a crowd, there is a good possibility that somebody is going to say to you, where are you staying tonight? And that's when the offers for homestays or perhaps even somebody's garden to camp in come up. So, uh, yeah, if you are hell-bent on wild camping that night, then, yes, you don't want to be too near a town. However, if you're running out of options or money, then possibly being in a town at that time of day could uh, invite uh, or, you know, get an invitation. Just a yeah, note for those true. listeners in North America, um, the garden is not the garden where you grow vegetables. It's actually just the backyard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, backyard. Or, right. or yes. Just I want to make that clear because yeah, yeah North Americans do yard work. We do gardening, which is an awful lot more pleasurable. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous when you say they're going to camp in the garden. Thinking, why in the hell would anyone camp in a garden? What are you going to trample all the vegetables down and put your tent in there? <laughs> Cabbage for breakfast, lovely. Interesting. Fresh. Speak the same language, kind of. <laughs> so are you guys looking for sites with water um, uh, or, are you, or are you looking for any spot at all? Water is nice, but you should be prepared to do without water because trying to find a campsite with good water in a lot of the world is really, really hard. I mean, British Columbia here, if we go camping out in the woods, and there's almost impossible not to find water, but there's lots parts of the world where water is a lot more difficult. Well, we always make sure we've got enough water to get us through the night and whatever cooking we need to get done. We just carry that automatically because if the bike breaks down in the middle of the day and you're out in the middle of the desert waiting for a ride, it's nice to have a little bit of water. So a couple of liters of water is uh, standard to carry all the time. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, we do the same. I, I, I think, yeah, finding water is a bonus. But, um, but yeah. yeah, and absolutely. So if you can find a, a running river or, or, or something like that, yeah, what a bonus to your, to your camping experience, but not really an essential part of the criteria because you're probably going to have water on you, I think. There was, yeah. a, a friend of mine came over last this time last year and we, I rode up to Romania with her. She was on her way back to the UK and she'd never wild camped. And we got hotels and that for the first couple of days. 
And the last night together, I was thinking, it was on my mind. It was a beautiful evening. We had a fabulous ride through canyons. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, I'll keep my eyes open for a wild camping spot. And we were riding on this road, and there was just forest, pine forest each side. And I thought, this is it. And I said, do you want a wild camp tonight? And he said, yeah, okay. So I did not necessarily the two-road rule, but went down a sort of logging track and deep into the forest. And we came to a clearing. It was spectacular. I mean, we were way off the road, yet we weren't so far off the road that you weren't, you know, beyond help. There was undulation, so we were hidden. There was a little stream. There was wood. We could have a fire. There was water, everything. And there was a view, undulation, so you're hidden, yet still you could see mountains in the background. It was so perfect. Uh, those little camping things are just, uh, that's just like uh, serendipity, you know, that when that all comes together like that. Unfortunately, we ran out of beer, but fortunately, I remember there was a village not long before it, so I was able to go back to the village, which was only about a 15-minute ride, to get more beer. Unfortunately, there was a big, stagnant, muddy puddle, which she'd fallen off of in on the way there, but wasn't a big deal. I managed to fall off in on my own <laughs> and came back stinking of stagnant puddle water and just soaked through. But luckily, there was the string, so I was able to wash myself off, so it all worked out. Out. And a couple of beers, and nothing seems so bad. Exactly. Absolutely, Graham. You'd mentioned uh, next you'd mentioned quarries, uh, pulling in, finding quarries. Yeah, I don't recommend them now. I mean, in Siberia, that was the only option. They have these V-shaped trenches each side of the road. So, despite there being an infinite amount of possibilities. There is nowhere where you can get your bike off the road. And the only place these V-shaped trenches stop is when there's a quarry. And apart from not being very glamorous places, they're quite intimidating and scary places. I had no option, and that's where I camped. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend it. Not if you've got an option. One tip I was going to give is is the, what we've found is if you're looking to get away from people and get into a spot that isn't used as much, watch for little roads and trails that might um, that might go into somewhere that was used at one point but hasn't been used for a long time. It'll be the grass will be starting to grow up, the trees will be starting to grow in. You know, something that looks overgrown. That's usually what I'm looking for when I'm looking for a spot to to have a quick camp. Yeah, that works really, really well. That's the top tip, Jim. Yeah, that, we've used that before, and it's yeah, it's ideal. In fact, you put straight in my mind um, when Birgit and I were riding in Oregon. We'd been riding on the coast, and the camping sites were all way too expensive. And yeah, we needed a shower, but hey, we could hang on for another couple of days. And um, we found um, a road that headed off up into the hills, and we took that. And then we found a, um, a, a little lane, exactly as you've described. And we headed up into some woods with that, and it didn't look as if any had been anybody had been along this track for about ten years. And when we got up to the top of the track, there was a stunning little place that we could put the tent, absolutely perfectly flat, big enough for both bikes and the tent with a view down the coast. Um, million dollar view, absolutely wonderful. And that for me is one of the best things about wild camping is the places that you get to that nobody else knows. And when you wake up in the morning, you're not surrounded by other people and their noises and their smells. Although somebody else's cooking breakfast can be quite a nice smell sometimes, of course. Um, but yeah, just just the waking up and, and letting the world gently wake you up. For, for me, wild camping buzzes because of that. Okay. Um, I like truck stops. We stay in them quite a lot. We always find that when we go in and ask, um, because we do just ask, you don't, don't just go and put your tent up, um, you get the old raised eyebrows, why the hell would you want to put a, a tent up here? 
Um, but they're brilliant spaces to places to go, so long as you've got decent earplugs, because you've got fuel in the morning normally, you've got somewhere that you can go and buy breakfast if you want to. Many truck stops have got showers for the truckers that you can use. Um, you can pick up all sorts of top tips from the truckers when you get talking to them, because most of these guys... You know, they don't have conversations with anybody other than truckers and people in service stations. So finding some oddballs on a motorcycle who are camping um, in their truck stop, you can have some amazing conversations. And it's it, it, one of the things that always surprised us is that how many truckers are all, all, also motorcyclists. And we found that all over the world. There's something in the same gene pool um, that makes them work. But, yeah, you do need a decent set of earplugs. Shirley, you had a story? I do. Um, this is one of the drawbacks of camping. For people like us who um, didn't understand that the midnight sun actually is real and it is a midnight sun, <laughs> and we were camping with um, – uh, there was a small group of us that were travelling uh, through Alaska up over the Arctic Circle on our way to Prudhoe Bay – and um, I, I guess we were a little overexcited because we passed the, across the Arctic Circle sign, had our photos taken at the sign and found a really good place to camp. And um, can I say we became over-refreshed because we kept saying, <laughs> we'll get dinner soon, it must still be early. <laughs> and then we realised that it was never going to get dark-ish to tell us when it was time to start getting dinner prepared. And by then we were so over-refreshed, did we really care whether we ate or not? Um, and we did care a lot the next morning. Um, one, of my, <laughs> one of my travelling companions in particular, a young, um, a young German man who um, I thought would have had a lot more stamina because Germans are renowned for enjoying a, a beer or ten, uh, was incredibly unwell. He had what they call in Australia a hangover you could photograph. <laughs> so that is the players. The fact that sometimes it just doesn't get dark. So make sure you keep your eye on your watch as to when you're going to cook tea. <laughs> it is confusing. It's hard to know when to drink when it when to stop drinking when it never gets dark. We had this start. It's when to stop, Graham. <laughs> Coming from Graham, it's just yeah. priceless. <laughs> We had this in, in Whitehorse in Canada, and this is in June. And um, same, same situation uh, where it didn't, we were in a bar, it didn't get dark, so it can't possibly be time to stop drinking. And when we finally left the place, it was like three, four in the morning. Next morning, at, at like nine o'clock, we, uh, we were in the restaurant, and uh, this girl comes in talking really loudly on her mobile phone saying, I'm absolutely shit-faced. I can't even believe what time it is. And I looked up and it was the w woman who was the bartender in the bar the night before. She hadn't even been to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so even the locals struggle with it. That highway, it's not the Dalton Highway. What highway is it that goes up to uh, Puerto Bay? It's the... Uh, the Dempster. No, it's, 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 no, it's the Dolphin. Yeah, that's right. Because we had some Canadians warning us about off-road and said, oh, you're going to get some dirt up the Dempster. And so, oh, we don't want dirt up the Dempster. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, the, going back to it, there is a point to this. Going back to what Sam was saying about uh, truckers and that and just being, you know, part of the same or people of the road, um, the, the, uh, the Dalton is very much a working road for truck drivers and they don't have a lot of time for people who are using it for jollies and pleasure. And we were waiting uh, at this uh, little sort of fuel station before we did hit the dirt. 
and the fuel pumps weren't working, so we had to wait for a little while. And I got talking to this trucker because I drove a truck for 17 years, so I do like, have an empathy with these people. And it was really good because at first he didn't didn't even want to give me the time of day. And when he learned that I you know I knew what I was talking about, I you know truck driver myself. Not only did he give me the time of day, but he also gave me advice. And uh, I, f- I felt so privileged that. Initially, I was beneath his contempt, yet another person using his work road for pleasure. But by the time we'd finished chatting, I was someone who'd got his advice. And when he, we left in front of him, and when it was time for – I saw him coming up behind us. The trucks go much faster than the bikes do, or certainly what we were doing. And we saw him coming behind. We pulled over. He honked and he waved and off he went. And I just, I felt, oh, that was really good. That was like a camaraderie of the road. I was really proud of that. Nice. It's a good feeling, isn't it, Graham, when you get that camaraderie, the recognition. I mean, it's, it, yeah, you, you summed it up, you know, friends of the road and that, that sort of thing. Um, just while we're still on the subject of trucks, we were talking about um, camping in India before, and I don't know whether this actually fits in with that. But when I was travelling there, I would quite often um, sleep at the truck stops there too. Um Again, they're noisy, um, but they have charpoys, which are sort of um, wood-framed beds, and instead of springs, they've got a, a netting of string, and they're free for anybody to sleep on. So the truck drivers would would um, you know crash on them. Sometimes there'd be a little bit of a shade, normally sort of a few rags strung on poles and so on. But um, you could park your bike right next door to a charpoy, and you could just go to sleep, and nobody would do anything to you. Nobody would bother you. The only price that you paid was that absolutely everything that you did, you had an audience for. You'd go to sleep with 20 men watching you, and you'd wake up with 20 different men standing watching you, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the advantage is somewhere safe to sleep, um, chai on, on tap, well, almost, in the morning when you wake up, there were always toilets, etc., etc. So um, I would recommend it. I think that they're really interesting places to stop. Cheap. Don't pay anything. Anywhere in India, you know you will have no personal space. Yeah. That's just the fact of life of travelling through, uh, through India. I think that might be one of the reasons the uh, uh, the, the girls, some of the boys as well, but uh, is, is the, uh, when you're not wearing a sari, one of the more practical forms of dress is what's called the sour kameez, which is like a very long top that goes down to the knees, but also sort of some baggy pants as well. And I think it's so when the, the, the girls, the ladies, Indian ladies as well, particularly when they're traveling, whether it's buses, trains or whatever, when the inevitable wee stop comes, they're able to be able to squat down and still have a little bit of privacy and and keep their um keep their modesty intact uh, i traveled with a, a girlfriend through india once and she was white blonde hair and so attracted so much attention uh but she did the best to to tone in and she bought this sour kameez and when we were on the bus sto- uh, on the uh, on the buses and we did stop she was able to have a little bit of decency when she needed we because there were always as you say there is always an audience always <laughs> Yeah, I can't remember which one of them out of the hedges. They do. You, you just you look around, there's no one here, and Brian would turn the bike off and I'd go down and beside the road to have a wee, and you could count them in. You know, once the bike stopped, <laughs> they'd think, oh, something interesting, that motor stopped, and within 
you know, a count of five, there would be all these people and Brian would just be saying, come on, hurry up, they're coming, they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> just can't hurry like, up. So you just, that's it. <laughs> like countdown began. Yeah. But, you know, what Graham's tip there about the Sawa Kameez was um, a really good one in general for people travelling in um, India, Pakistan, um, Bangladesh, that particular region. Um Female Western tourists do get hassled to a certain extent. And yeah, as Graham said, um, the blonder they are, the more hassled they seem to get. But one of the tricks um, for females in India is to use these salwar kameezes, not only for the convenience of going to the loop, but also because you're showing respects to um, the local culture by wearing recognisably lo local clothing. I mean, you're, you're not going native, which is a classic old-timers phrase, isn't it? Um, but just by showing the culture respects, then you tend to get a little bit of respect back. Mm. Um, Birgit, when we first started travelling in India, she was wearing um, a long cheesecloth skirt right down to her ankles. She was wearing um, a really baggy, long sleeve, high neck blouse. And she was getting all sorts of attention. And normally Birgit works in front of me because she's only five foot, so she kind of gets lost in crowds. Um, but uh, this particular time, um, she had been sort of eased by the crowd around behind me. And um, I didn't realise she was in trouble until I heard a, a yell of sheer rage from her. And I turned around just in time to see her fist connect with this guy's chin. And when I asked her what, what had happened, this guy had groped her. Um, oh, well, he didn't realise. She's a that... woman, that girl. <laughs> Oh, she's absolutely brilliant. And I tell you what, not only did she deck this guy, but when he picked himself up and ran, ran off through the crowd, Birgit chased him. Uh, I've never <laughs> seen a crowd part so quickly. It was excellent. The expressions of all the local people of this this little German girl chasing through the crowd with her fist waving at this guy. My goodness, he'd have been in trouble if she'd caught him. But um, I've, I've sidetracked. The next day, Birgit bought salwar kameez and she bought a scarf which she put over her hair. And um, instantly, the hassle stopped. And the other side effect of that was that when we were bargaining for food in the markets, the prices came down so much faster and so much closer to local prices because of the way she was dressed. It's very interesting um, to see. Interesting. Um, what my girlfriend at the time noticed as well was she got a lot more respect from the Indian women because she was dressed like that as well. Yeah. And it was yeah. something I was oblivious to, but she said it was noticeable. I think there's a gap in the market. It's only a matter of time before Touratech make a Kevlar line sour kameez for bikers <laughs> going through India. Now, there is an idea. With a suitable veil for Iran. That has to be in the new helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Just before we wrap this up, I want to go back to the, um, the the hiding the tent and camouflaging our bikes and putting our socks on our mirrors and things like that. Any other tips for that sort of thing? Are you go Are you guys going as far as carrying a, a tarp or something like that to throw over things to try and camouflage more? Is it is it a real big concern to get rid of those reflective things? Well, you're always carrying a bike cover. cover anyway, right? Bike cover. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Bike cover. Just put your right. bike cover on. Mm -hmm. Just make sure you don't have a bike cover that's got reflective bits on it. Hmm. Yeah, if you have to turn it inside out, that's what but, I do. But yeah. that's, that's where an old tarp is great for a bike cover. Yeah, they're noisy, though, and they don't fit as well, and so you end up being a lot more bulky, and they're a lot more faffing about trying to get them tied down, whereas a bike cover, you throw it on and just leave it. It's done. Mm. Yeah. And in Asia, because you've actually camouflaged your bike completely, um, it, yeah, it's like Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. Yeah. Um, 
because oh, they yeah, can't the see what's underneath it at all, it disappears. So are you yeah, taking your and pulling those reflective strings off and, and taping stuff over before you go out? When we're overlanding, yeah, that's exactly what yeah. we do. But as soon as yeah. we're back in um, westernized countries and we're staying, running the risk of staying on camping sites um, more often, then the reflective stuff goes back on again because we don't want people falling over the tent. Yes, exactly. Do you I know what I saw in the door the other day? In, in the door, sorry, I interrupt. In the door the other day, they had LED solar powered lit, lit up tent pegs. <laughs> oh my lord! So, uh, <laughs> oh Stop laughing, Graham. If you're in a campground or a festival, you, your little tent pegs light up so people don't trip over your guide ropes. Not good for wild yeah. camping, but I, I almost put them in my trolley, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, perfect for download, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course, the only downside is you're not going to be camped in the daytime for them to charge up, but I know that's a that's besides the point. Shirley, what were you going to say? What I was going to say was um, from now on when we're travelling around, we'll be able to pick the fans of Adventure Rider Radio Raw because they'll be the ones with their socks and boots over the mirrors on their backs. <laughs> they just have to be very careful not to do that in countries where they have cheese-eating bats. Oh. <laughs> Oh. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> you know, you really shouldn't do it with the KLR either when you're in Canada, but that, that could be mistaken for a moose, Graham. If you're putting ah. <laughs> hunters will take that puppy out. A <laughs> moose with near sight might think it's a very attractive other moose, and find your bike in all sorts of difficult. Oh yeah, your sheepskin suit is going to be a right mess in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you got the, your sheepskin on the bike, right? <laughs> <laughs> the second half of the program tonight, as we go into the wee hours of the morning here in the Pacific Northwest, that's I'll stop voice, about it. That's oh. my voice is slowing down. <laughs> Motor maintenance while you're on the road. And not long ago, I talked with a guy. Uh, we did an interview for Adventure Rider Radio about a guy who rode a KTM Ooh. 500 EXC. Um, from I think it was from New Zealand to to well obviously he didn't ride the, ride the ocean but up up through South America into North America anyway you, you know what the KTM 500 EXC is like it's got an oil change I think like every I don't know, 75 kilometers or something like that so <laughs> he, he had to find all kinds of places to get the oil change and, and do maintenance and and every, as does everybody right I mean we all need to to do work on our bike. So what we want to talk about here was motor maintenance, how to figure out where you should be getting your work done on your bike. I mean, and I know if you've got lots of money, you can probably just go to the, you know, the expensive dealerships. That might be the option. But maybe we can get up some other suggestions here for, for those that are not quite so flush with cash, picking a shop, et cetera, those sorts of things. Let's start with that. Well, I can tell you what I know about mechanics of bikes. You put petrol in, in them and they go. If they stop and they've got petrol in them, they're broken. So I can take over for an hour as to uh, getting bike yeah, repaired thanks, and maintenance, okay? Bye. I've got to write that down. <laughs> Go slowly, just I'm writing here. Back up and start again. I was just going to say, can you put that in the notes, please, Jim? <laughs> yeah, we'll transcribe that part for sure. Yeah. Look, um, I, uh, we were in India again in Goa, and I needed to change the oil and do the valves and a few other things. And just talk to the locals, and they said, "Oh, the, the man down in that uh, that shop there, he uh, he has a good workshop at the back." And I went down, and spoke to this guy, and he said, "Yeah, come back on Saturday afternoon and use my garage and drop the oil, whatever you want to do." So I went back there, and uh, he and I 
spent the day um, just talking bikes while I did my bike, and uh, then he produced the beer and then uh, some other <laughs> concoction. And I think I got home at about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, didn't I, Cheryl? Yep. <laughs> yeah, he's just a, a little the worse for wear, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it but, this way. I don't think he would have ridden the bike were we anywhere other than Goa. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, um, that, that's the best way to go is to talk to the locals. And um, yeah. if you need to do something like that because you've got to drop your oil somewhere and rather than digging a hole and burying it, as you shouldn't do, um, taking it to some friendly guy who will um, enjoy your company. I've always found that the best, best, best thing to do. Um, you know, we had a little breakdown on the side of the road, and I remember going into a little workshop and and using this guy's uh, bench and um, travelled about 100 kilometres down the road and realised I'd left my leather man there. So somewhere in Nepal, uh, a little man's got a really good leather man. <laughs> if, if, in Australia you were to, if in Australia you were to dig a hole and bury your oil, would the dingoes follow you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's good oil that comes out of a good Bavarian monster like mine, that probably would dig it up. <laughs> you're, you're going to be getting some black marks against you, Graham. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit greasy, that comment, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm amazed I had the bottle for it. Oh. oh, stop! <laughs> Please. I've, I've just no, I have to explain what's going on. I'm, I'm suddenly very, very happy because um, my host Rob has just bought me in a large bottle of Gentleman Jack's Jack Daniels Tennessee Ooh. whiskey. Hey, what is Gentleman Jack Daniels? Well, Jack Daniels, the brand, and Gentleman Jack apparently is, um, I'm reading off the label, double mellowed Tennessee whiskey. Oh, no, try the Honey Jack. Honey Jack. Oh, I like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've tried that. It's nice. Yeah. It's really good. What's you know, I think for a topic anyway, one time, we should just talk about alcohol. Sure, we are. That's a good idea. Where to get the good stuff? Yeah. Yeah, adventure drinking. Much years. Adventure drinking. <laughs> Alcohol, what I have imbibed. <laughs> Places I have been drunk. Best place for a hangover. We need a whole new show. <laughs> How many bizarre places did you wake up? Cocktails on the road. So when it comes to maintenance on the road, back to that. <laughs> um, yes. Are you guys doing your own maintenance all the time or are you taking it in and getting it done? Now, that's something I was going to talk about because you're talking about where do you find a reputable shop, but it depends on totally on whether you're doing your own work. If you're doing your own work, you don't need a reputable shop. You just need a place that will allow you to work on your bike, although I've often found that the parking lot in the back of a hotel works pretty well too. And Susan can bring down something to drink and a little snack for food. And, uh, there's a washroom handy and all the rest of it. So I can work on the bike quite easily in the back of a hotel. That works pretty well for me. But uh, if you want to try and find a shop, I remember a really good story. I was in uh, Peru. Yeah, it was Peru. Northern Peru riding with Max from Italy. Max had been riding about six months and saw this beautiful R1100GS yellow with a mannequin beside it in a yellow and black BMW suit. And he wasn't even thinking about buying a motorcycle. And he walked by and he saw this bike and said, oh, that's beautiful. And he ended up buying it and riding it through South America, which is where I met him. 
and he'd been, like I said, he'd been riding for six months. And we were, this is when we were having problems with roads. The roads were terrible. Uh, the Pan American Highway was washed out because of El Nino. And it was an, an exciting time was had. And Max crashed a few times and managed to break some bits and pieces. And the, the last crash, he broke off his uh, saddlebag and he broke off the top box and pieces were broken. And he said, oh, we got to go to Quito and, and get some, uh, or Quito, um, Lima, sorry, Lima. You've got to go to Lima and uh, go to the BMW shop there and get some replacement parts. And I said, no, 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 no. We don't want to go there. That's, that's like two days away. <laughs> that's, that's too hard. Um, let's just cruise this little town and see if we can find a shop or someplace where we can you know, find some bits and pieces. And there's got to be a, a repair shop of some kind. So we're just riding around and we ended up asking a cop, you know, is there a repair shop anywhere? And police, by the way, know everybody and everything in town so they're really good to get directions if you can you know get get on the right side of them and be friendly and ask them nice and uh anyway this guy said yeah there's a shop down the street so we went down the road and it was literally a one-car garage open to the street with a bunch of tools and bits and pieces and there was a vice and they had a welder and i mean it, it looked like your worst nightmare of a shop it was terrible but they said, yeah, come on in, and they helped us out, and I ended up doing a lot of it, and they did all the, the grunt work, and I directed, and they made a couple of brand-new parts, replacement parts that were better than factory BMW. They were beautiful, strong, never, ever going to break, and at the and, and the wife brought out uh, cookies and sandwich and a drink and fed us, and everything it was fantastic, you know, and we had a good time talking about it and fixing this bike and what were we doing and yeah, shops could be really good that way. These guys were great. And so at the end of the day, the two of them had spent most of the day on it with us, and they charged 25 bucks. Wow. And, and the, worst, the bad part was Max then started to bargain. He's Italian, right? So he started tried to bargain. And I said, Max, shut up. Pay the man. It's a good deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, so yeah. Look, you, we last time when we were travelling through um, Russia, um, one of the guys that we bumped into, his gearbox had given out in his R100 GS, and uh, can't think what town we were in, but we're in Banal in Siberia. Banal, and um, he just spoke to the local hotel where we were all staying. All the my bikers seemed to gather there, and um, on Saturday morning, uh, two men came around, pulled his gearbox apart on the street. And repaired it and put it back together, and it cost him all of a hundred and ten dollars, US. And that was an all-day affair. It took they were there until six o'clock at night, and um, he was. And I I spoke to him not that long ago, and the the bike's still going, and the gearbox is still together. So you know, people will help you out. That's we have to look for is someone like that. I, I had a guy oh, tell right. me a great story. He was in Ethiopia, of all places, and broke the rear sprocket carrier part of the hub for the back wheel. And he said, oh, what am I going to do now? So he started asking, is there somewhere, somebody you could weld this up or something? And somebody said, yeah, go, go see that guy there. And he couldn't weld it. He said, it's too badly broken, but I can make you a new one. Yeah. He had a huge lathe in a little village in the back of nowhere in Ethiopia. And he made a new hub that the sprocket bolted onto, yeah, yeah. and it fit perfectly and ran there for the entire rest of their trip. 
But you, you just never it's, know. It's absolutely amazing what you what you can find. I mean, uh, the further off the beaten track you get, the more these people have got to make it work anyway. They've got to make it work. Yeah. And you see some of the films on, on you know, that Overlanders um, make about, you know, the maintenance, the trucks that these guys are, are keeping running that should have been dead and on the scrap heap 50 years ago. And these guys are still making them run. When Grant was talking about um, the asking the police, it popped a thought into my mind about a situation in Colombia. Um, and Birgit's bike, it's um, a 1971 R60-5, um, and it started backfiring horribly. And this had been going on for a little while, and we just could not work out what was going on. But it, um, we were pulling into this little town, and the bike just gave one huge backfire. And I'm literally, I promise you this is true. I've got true. I've got photographic evidence. The backfire blew the ends off her, off her exhausts. <laughs> From that time onwards, heading into the town, normally we would sort of creep in very gently and very quietly and sort of BMW purr and people wouldn't know that we were there until we were there and then they'd be watching us going. As we rode into this town, the streets were full of people sort of craning their necks to see what the hell was coming <laughs> down the road. <laughs> but we, we ended up staying um, in a brothel. Um, well, because it was the only place we could get the bikes off the road. Um, and um, when we realised that, you know, these exhaust pipes needed completely replacing totally um, or repairing, and we were looking at the state of them, and, and the metal on um, exhausts from 1971 is really thin. So we're thinking, how on earth are we going to find somebody who can weld or solder these? Anyway, a policeman just happened to be passing outside and um, we showed him one of the, the silencers and he said, oh, I'll come back in just a minute. And he came back with a police pickup truck which had a big cage on the back. It wasn't a twin cab, so it was driver's seat and driver, um, um, driver's mate. And he made us sit in this cage in the back. So we ended up going through this town looking as if we'd just been arrested. It was a very embarrassing moment because, of course, everybody had seen us coming into town because we'd announced our presence a little bit. But anyway, yeah, they knew exactly where the guy who could weld yep. totally thin um, metal um, on disintegrating exhaust was. And this guy did a fantastic job, and um, Birgit still has them on her bike today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, we, we did the thing. I can give you another story. We were uh, again in India and on this little back road and, uh, I grabbed a bit of air, quite a bit of air, uh, going over a culvert. And uh, when the bike landed, we had this almighty crack from the back. And the um, the frame holding the top box on had snapped, and it's aluminium on the 1150GS. Uh, so it was dragging its ass on the ground. And uh, we pulled up, and there happened to be a policeman there. And we needed someone to do some aluminium welding. So the policeman jumps on out on the road, stops some poor innocent soul just trundling along on his little um, Honda step-through, um, gets on the back of his bike and instructs us to follow him. And we followed him for about two or three kilometres into a town. And then he waited while I pulled the bike apart. I left Shirley on the side of the road with all the bits and pieces around the bike and said, don't lose anything. And uh, I had to take the, the, the frame and, and rack and walk behind him down this little alleyway until we found a guy who could aluminium weld. And um, we did that. And uh, I left Shirley talking to the locals about cricket. 
Um, and uh, which I'm sure Sam knows about. But uh, oh, you loads. probably don't. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, when we were in India, the Indian cricket team was in Australia and they beat Australia in the second test in Adelaide. And oh. everywhere we went in India, without fail, the first question, oh, you're from Australia? Yes. We beat you in the cricket. Yeah, so fantastic. Next question, do you know Ricky Ponting? <laughs> uh-huh. No, I'm sorry, we yeah. don't. Oh, lose interest immediately. <laughs> don't care if you know Ricky Ponting. They were so friendly yeah. and you would always find someone to help you. And the other other trick I found was we, get a, we had a really – bad, uh, well, we had a puncture up on the Karakoram Highway and I was able to repair it, but it kept leaking all the way down and the the tyre was just about stuffed, but we couldn't get a new one. We got back to this town and I found a tyre waller working uh, on the apron of a service station with a fire. And this is a tubeless tyre. And I watched this guy for a while and I went up to him. I, I couldn't speak his language and he couldn't speak mine, but we worked out what we wanted to do. I was able to get the tyre off the rim and he got an old piece of rubber, heated it up and uh, rolled it into a a pinprick, pushed it through the hole and then got another piece of rubber and put it on the inside of the tyre and got old G-clamps with a couple of pieces of asbestos and um, and, uh, heated them up and then screwed that onto the tyre and it melded better than anything you could, you could repair in any Western country. You know, you went somewhere here, they'd say, oh, it's stuffed, mate, you need a new one. No, not over there. They fix anything. Yeah. Anything oh, on absolutely. the side I was travelling yeah, in part- Pakistan with a couple of German guys and they were driving an old um, Kaysborough Setra school bus and they'd driven all the way out from Germany to Nepal and they were heading there back and I linked up with them for a while. Now, these, um, these old buses... Um, don't have leaf springs, they have coil springs. And um, all of a sudden, the, the front um, near side corner just flopped of this bus. Mm. And um, this thing had cracked. Um, so the guys um, drove, drove on a little bit further until they came to um, one of these runs of roadside stalls um, where the truck drivers would be you know, um, dropping off fruit and all this sort of stuff and chai stops, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a welder there. And this guy took the broken spring. Um, he bent some six-inch nails so that they matched the wrap of the spring. Um, he welded the spring and then um, welded the nails on and dumped this instantly into a piece of sand so that it could all cool differently because, you know, they knew about the different cooling rates of the different metals that they were welding together. And this yeah. um, repaired spring lasted them all the way back to Germany. And those case for Acetra buses, they're heavy beasts. Mm, wow. Impressive. Well, let's. Um, there's just two things that I, I want to ask of you guys before we finish up with this. Was one, essential lubricant, essential, essential, boy, it's getting late. Essential lubricants <laughs> for travel. <laughs> That's this is going to go so I can already tell this is not going to work. We're not even going to mention So, dare, I think it's time to open the gentleman, Jack. Dare I ask <laughs> essential lubricants yeah. for travel? What do you guys well, carry? Again, depends on well, where the Jack. who comes along in the night. <laughs> <laughs> I I knew it was going to happen. As soon as I read (laughs) my writing, I knew it was a mistake. (laughs) Wishful thinking, Graham. 
He's not denying it, though, is he? No, he's not. No, I, just, I was waiting for the denial. It didn't come. Grant, help me out here. <laughs> Essential lubricants. I, I don't believe in WD-40. How's that? You don't. Everybody Ooh. thinks that WD-40 is the cat's meow. I don't like it. Everybody knows what WD stands for, right? Well, I believe that some people say water disbursement, but I'm, I'm not sure mm-hmm. as I'm sold on that. It, it is. Water dispersal. That's what it's for. It's designed to... Um, unfreeze frozen things and stuck things. But if you're riding your motorcycle on a regular basis and you're looking after it properly, you don't need something to unstick rusted and so forth things. You've been lubricating on a regular basis. And WD-40 is a terrible lubricant. Oh, yeah. I, I don't to know it to. where it got confused with lubricant. I, I've sort of noticed that over ah. maybe the past 20 years. It's like WD-40 has become a lubricant to some people, and it's it was never a lubricant. It was always penetrating it's, oil. Yeah, it's penetrating oil, exactly. So you're supposed to penetrate, get the thing loosened up, and then put some oil on it. Right. So I just carry um, a little squirt bottle of Triflow, which works really well. It's an excellent lubricant, Teflon-based, does a great job. I had one little bottle, I think it was about four inches tall, 100 millimeters tall, and about 25 millimeters an inch in diameter. And that did us for two years around the world. A little drop here, a little drop there, and I'm regularly lubricant. Uh, you know, I'm always lubricating everything, so it's always in good shape. And that bottle lasted me the entire trip, and I've still got the bottle. It doesn't have anything left in it. I had to put a refill in it, but it lasts a long time. You don't need an awful lot of it, but that does an amazing job for just about anything that you want to move. I mean, my philosophy is always Excuse been, my ignorance. Is, yeah? Excuse my ignorance, but is that Canadian or is it a North American no, thing? I've never heard of it before. Um, it kind of hides. It's certainly North America, but it's also available in Europe as well. TRI hyphen FLO. I think it might even, I can't remember if it has a W on the end or not, but I don't think so. No, it doesn't have a W. Grant, you know what I want for Christmas. You got it. I'll make sure you get it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Great stuff. (laughs) What about Greece? Not, um, Greece, I carry a film can. Remember film cans? I carry a film can of a good waterproof wheel bearing grease. And again, one little can of that will last you a long, long time. You don't use it very often, you know, greasing your lever pivots and stuff like that. And worst comes to worst, you can clean and grease a wheel bearing and it'll do the job until you get to another source of more. Um, do you use the one with um, graphite in it, Grant? I don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Good waterproof wheel bearing grease. And that does just about everything. Graphite is is nice. It's a nice addition, but it's, I mean, we're, we're talking 0.1% better. I don't know. I don't yeah. worry about it. I just like the feel of it. Um, and, <laughs> um, I like the smell of it, and it seems to do a good job. So we've always yep. gone with the graphite grease. Um, yeah, they're all We always carry a bit of copper slip as well. Yes. On, yeah, uh, well, on BMWs, you need it for the exhaust pipes. It's really good to have grease that smells good. Yes, it's it's important. important. I would think, yeah. Yeah, you don't want it to stink. I mean, you like to like your bike, right? You don't want to hate it. <laughs> Ooh, I can't go near my bike. It stinks. Oh, forget it. <laughs> Granny, you did that very well. I thought so. I'm just copying Susan. She does that all the time. (laughs) What did you say, Shirley? She was was just worried about these guys. This is just the weirdest thing, listening to this conversation and knowing nothing about what you're talking about. (laughs) 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 If you want good smells from a workshop, or actually uh, from oil, try try Castellar. Some of you may remember Castellar and how wonderful it smells. (laughs) Castellar is racing. (laughs) 
I never bothered with aftershave. I thought the Castrol R did a very good job. <laughs> yeah, totally. You didn't buy your Ewan McGregor adventure aftershave, Sam? I wouldn't leave home without it. Can I talk about lubricants? I'll be serious. Um, okay, let's try it. Record this bit. It's going to be one <laughs> no, off. No, um, no, listen. Um, Going back to, because uh, I didn't have a lot to say about the last bit, um, uh, repairs and that, um, and I had a wonderful little experience in Azerbaijan where I needed to do an oil change. All I could find was mineral oil, and I didn't really want I wanted at least semi-synthetic oil for the KLR, and I saw a Harley shop, and it's very easy to sort of down these places because they can be a little bit reverse snobbery and they're only interested in Harleys. And I thought, well, I ought to be able to get some good quality oil here at least. Not only did I get the good quality oil, but they let me use their workshop. They let me use their tool. Well, I had my own tools, but they offered me their tools and they were so accommodating. Their oil was, of course, expensive because it was branded. Yet he gave me his staff discount on the oil that I needed. And so as far as carrying lubricants, luckily, or by convenience, the KLR, the oil capacity is two and a half litres. So you, you can't buy half a litre bottles. So I always have a half litre left over. So that is a very useful top-up until the next oil change. I generally do it like every 3,000 miles. So that is one lubricant. I obviously engine oil, spare engine oil, but it's the same engine oil left over from my oil change. But the other thing, crossing the border from lubricants, another brilliant little, I don't know what you'd call it, concoction to carry is the JB World, which mm. is the sort of gooey stuff that will stop a hole in a crankcase, plug it permanently. Amazing stuff in a little tube, which will, those absolute trip-stopping catastrophes will not be trip-stopping, oh, man, trip-stopping catastrophes. That's <laughs> me bloody Mary. And, uh, they, <laughs> I can hear the ice. Uh, that got, goes in the non-tool items that you must carry, though. That was That's coming up after this. Oh, is it? But it's still, well, we, uh, well, okay. It must cross the l- lubricant non-tall. Okay, sorry. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, I ride a, a shaft-driven bike normally, but um, I'm on an F800 GSA at the moment and really enjoying it. Um, but, of course, it's got a chain. Um, I rode an F800 when I was here last time and had a chain oiler. This one's got a chain oiler on it. But I guess that everybody who um, is riding a bike with chain has got to carry top-up um, chain fluid of some sort. Actually, chainsaw oil works just as well because it's also got sticky qualities, which if you think about it, it won't fly off a revolving chain because it's meant to stay on a chainsaw. So and they have chainsaws everywhere. So if you run out of your Scott oil oil, chainsaw oil works just as well. Mm, that's a good tip. What about transmission um, oil? Because I hear some people using transmission oil on their chains. I would think uh, it'll maybe. fling off. I don't know. But, but I mean, any oil is going to work on a chain. It's just going to be how often exactly. you have to put it on. Mm. Anyone else for for essential lubricants? Does anyone carry anything different than than the two things? That, that's what that's what I have too. Is um, I always I have a little tiny tube of waterproof grease that I have with me, and that's sort of my uh, my go to for everything. I just did a quick check on TriFlow. It does have a W on the end of it, and it's North America only, which is really sad. However, I can give you another one that's also excellent and is available worldwide, and that's the LPS series. 
of lubricants. They've got lubricants and cleaners and stuff like that, and they are excellent. I like them a lot too. It was quite funny when Jim just said, now what about Greece? And it's like, no, it's not available there. <laughs> well, while you're in North America, Sam, you can pick up TriFlow at your local Napa store probably. I'm just writing it down. How do I spell yeah. TriFlow? T-R-I hyphen F-L-O-W. Right. Lovely. Good stuff. I shall do that. Um, the only other thing that we carry is um, a little bit of top-up um, brake fluid. We've had a few situations where, for some completely unknown reason, um, the hydraulic um, brake system has lost fluid. And, um, yeah, it's been nice. And it's just, you know, a tiny little squeezy bottle, the sort of thing that you can pick up from a pharmacy. Um, or if you're um, a whiskey drinker, then you can pick up a, a miniature whiskey and use one of those. Yeah. You just want to make sure you've got it well sealed because it's hygroscopic, which means it picks up any water and from in the air and gets yep. into it, and that's really bad. I find that, yep. uh, from from my thinking on brake fluid, wherever you buy gas, they'll be selling you oil of some kind, and they'll have brake fluid. Just buy whatever they got locally. So you're allowed to talk about brake fluid, but I'm not allowed to talk about JB well. Neither which are lubricants. <laughs> <laughs> JB Weld is wonderful stuff. I highly recommend it. No, 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 we're not talking about that. Always got some of it. <laughs> well, yes, well, lubricants. Oh, yeah, lubricants, right. Yeah, yeah Graham, I'm, I'm with you, mate. I, I, don't, I just buy what I need. You know, if the bike's running low on oil, I'll buy a litre bottle of oil. And you know, yep. it, it'll work until I get to a point where I need to change the oil. And that's fine. And yeah. I've never, never been able not to find oil or anything else that I need on the road. Yeah. It might not be the brand or the model or style of oil you want, but hey, it's oil. It's good enough. It's oil and it works. And uh, when you can get the the best, better stuff for your bike, will you change it? But um, uh, that's that's my philosophy. And on with Graham, JB Weld. Let's move on. Okay. Yay! Non-tool <laughs> items that everyone should carry. Graham, do you have one? Can I just go back? Can I, can I well, just go Greece? back to fluids for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Graham. Are you serious, Sam? I can't work it out. <laughs> no, I'm not being serious, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, well, I think we've mentioned JB Weld now. Um, so I've kind of exhausted... JB Weld's a good one. Yeah, so I've exhausted <laughs> my list. <laughs> yep. The other thing I carry is a 60 mil syringe. Ooh. Interesting. Okay. I'm not sure I want to know why. <laughs> curious. Example... Well, sometimes when you're crossing borders, you've got to explain the fact that you're carrying this syringe that looks like it would tranquilise a horse. But um, for uh, differentials and putting oil into differentials, particularly on the later model uh, beamers, uh, mine in particular, you've got to take the back wheel off, you've got to get an inspection hole, and you try putting um, 188 mil of oil into the, the diff on one of those things, You've got to measure it correctly and you've got to get it in that little hole. So I carry a 60mm syringe with a thin piece of uh, uh, plastic tubing so that I can accurately measure the oil going into the diff. Mm, interesting. Sounds like a plan. I can't remember how many times I've spilled oil and I'm going, oh, God, i got to take it all out and re-measure it again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, there's Actually, two solutions. a bit of plastic One tubing. One you I was, can just I was throw the say, bike a bit of plastic oh, tubing. Oh, Jim, shut up! Just because it's your show. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind, and I just like to say. 
<laughs> you go ahead, the, sir. It's a plastic bit. Oh, God, I give up. <laughs> <laughs> You were about to tell us your, your, about your colonic irrigation tubing. Uh, it's just the multiple, the multiple uses, and there's another one. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of plastic tubing. Besides yeah. an impetual out your tank for your stove, for, um, I don't know, looking through. <laughs> I don't know. I had loads now. Jim put me off. But a little bit of flexible plastic tubing has a lot of uses. I've, but I've gone blank now. I've been interrupted. I've lost yeah. the thread completely. <laughs> okay, so you were talking about using the tubing for, for siphoning fuel or filling up oil, like for differential, that sort of thing? Yeah. 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 It's also good for bleeding brakes and that sort of thing too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And is that, the is, is that a plastic one that you have or is that the surgical tubing style? Uh, plastic well, and transparent. Plastic. I mean, you can see what's going on inside. Plastic's fine. That's all. That's yeah. all it needs to be. And you, you just cut it on a little bit of an angle to make sure you can you can get it in that little hole because it's quite difficult on the on the newer beamers. And it also, if you're on, if you're lucky, it fits inside your handlebars if you don't have solid handlebars. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I've, I've got. Oh, there was that scene, wasn't there, right at the beginning of Easy Riders, where he had that bit of transparent tube which he stuffed all his dollar bills in from the drug deal and then he put it inside his gas tank and that's what financed their trip down to Mardi Gras so he could also use it for that <laughs> wow what a memory I'm impressed plastic a handlebar is a perfect size for a 12 gauge shotgun cartridge too you know if you, you can sit there I'll do it if you need it to <laughs> <laughs> just don't hit it. Just don't crash, right? Blow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your handlebar apart. <laughs> so, non-tool items. Anybody? Uh, well, we carry some gasket sealer um, for temporary repairs, but um, we've ended up making um, gaskets out of cardboard in the past because we've just not been able to get hold of spare parts easily. Um, we'll always carry a few, um, the main electronic components, um, an HT lead, spark plugs, fuel filters, air filter, oil filter, um, a length of wire so that you can use it for current testing and also, you know, if you've got a um, splint round something, a breaking wire, um, spare bulbs, um, seals and gaskets, um, carb diaphragms, and um, cables, of course, you know, um, clutch, throttle, um, brake cables. Um, <laughs> I was going into Italy one time, and actually, the one thing I'd forgotten to, to, to pack was the clutch cable. And what did I break? At lunchtime on a Saturday, when everything in Italy closes down for the rest of the weekend, I was so annoyed with myself. But actually, it just turned into an unexpected adventure full of lots of really interesting people. And we ended up in a tiny little back street at a Vespa scooter shop that stayed open. And the owner um, sent all his staff home and stayed on and made me a new cable. Nice. Hmm. But I remember to pack my cables now. <laughs> I like to take like new cables. I was going to say, I was, I was gonna say when, when I buy new cables for spares, I put them on the bike immediately. And the old yeah. cables are now my spares because I know they fit. There's nothing makes you feel stupider, and I will confess I've been there, uh, than a new set of cables, and you go to put it on in the middle of nowhere, and it's the wrong one. Mm, yeah, that's a the good only spare that, just, work yeah. that you know is the one you took off your bike. 
And you can just run them parallel to your old cables as well. They can be cable tied, yeah. clutch cables, throttle cables, cable tied there, and a little bit of cling film around the the, the, the bottom and the and the top. And yeah. uh, it's a great place to store them. And when it, it's yeah. almost a pit stop speed that you can replace them with when they do break, and they will. Yes, it's such absolutely. a good thing to do, isn't it? And it's distributing uh -huh. the weight again, rather than sort of yeah. taking up space in your panniers and adding more weight on the back of your bike, etc. Yeah, several cables yeah. coiled up is really bulky, when, except unless it's on the bike yeah. where it belongs. And yeah. Another non-tool thing, and this is for me specific to a KLR, the two electronic boxes that can't be repaired are the regulator rectifier and the CDI unit. You can pick them up on eBay really quite cheap. A regulator rectifier in the UK for £20, a CDI for between £40 and £80. If you need to buy a brand-new CDI unit, they're £450. Now, it's not just taking it in case my CDI breaks down. It eliminates that suspect. So if I do have an electrical problem or a breakdown, I can plug in my new CDI. I don't even have to fit it. I just take off the seat and plug it in, or the tank, depending on what, what you're talking about, and plug it in. Okay, the problem persists, so it's not those items. It's a lovely little insurance thing just to keep it in a jiffy bag at the bottom of the pannier and have those two little things to eliminate that suspect and you can know that you need to look elsewhere for the problem. So that will be a non-tool item that, well, specifically for KLR, but every bike will have its Achilles heel or whatever. Yes, but I, one thing I'll throw in again, same thing as the cables, take that new <clears throat> used component off eBay and plug it in and ride it because then Take you know it works. Yeah. You know how dumb you're going to feel if you plug it in and it doesn't work and you keep working and you keep working. And <laughs> yeah. guess what? They're both dud. Yeah, oh, you've yeah, already that, left that's... positive feedback. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Check and make sure it actually works. And if it works, keep riding it. It's fine. You know the old one worked. It was working fine when you took it off. So it's your best spare, always. Yeah. That's a, such a good idea, Grant. I haven't yeah, done the that other in the past. Yeah, I know. I've been bit hard that way myself. <laughs> I've seen people getting bit by it. The when, other non-tool item I carry now is a um, GS911, which people who are riding newish BMWs will know what, probably know what that is. Uh, GS911 is an electronic gadget that fits. It's about the size of your cell phone, except it's about, I don't know, 30 millimeters thick or something. Um, and you can plug it into the... Um, data port on your GS, RT, whatever BMW, and it'll do approximately the same job as the big fancy million dollar machine at your BMW dealer. You can even reset wow. your service codes and do all kinds of cool things with it. You can um, pump your brakes to, for bleeding your brakes. You can set the pump to start pumping and you can set the fuel pump to pump and so you know the fuel pump's working because it's pumping because I told it to. Uh, very, very cool tool. Um, it's made in South Africa. Uh, Definitely recommend it. I just got one last year, and I think, wow, this is. I gotta have. I gotta take this one with me everywhere. This is great. Really good tool to carry for new new style BMWs. Anyone else? Anything? No, just my syringe and um, the JB well. So on for <laughs> so, plugs. Just oh, whoa, 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 whoa! You said non-tool items, which made me think we were going to be moving on to tool items, but we're not. No so I have an essential tool, non-tool, multi-tool item. This is priceless. Okay, oh. so let's do tool items since you have your huge list. What do you have? <laughs> uh, this this was brilliant and I recommend this to everybody. I was in, uh, where was I? Uh, Albania 
and the map was wrong, which meant I took a road that wasn't there and I dropped my bike frequently, continuously over and over again. And on one of the drops, when I was absolutely exhausted, it went down hard, the wrong side of a slope, and I snapped off the front brake lever. The back brake was already not working, and now I had this little stump of a front brake lever. So I had no brakes. I was off-road in the middle of nowhere. In the end, I had to go back across the border I crossed three hours ago, back into Montenegro, because Albania had just beaten the hell out of me. Anyway, now I haven't got any brakes. I've got no leverage on my front brake lever because it's just snapped off. And I find a little guest house for the night because I'm soaking wet and I'm knackered, my bike's knackered. And how the hell, if I try and drill my brake lever to make holes in it and splice the lever bit onto the stuff that's in, that's going to weaken it so much. There's going to be a time when you grab for it in emergency, it's just going to snap off. I can't wait 14 days, whatever, for a brake lever to come from the UK, what am I going to do? Posted a photograph on Facebook of my broken brake lever and just wrote bollocks, Albania. And uh, the next morning, someone said, have you got a pair of mole grips, vice grips, they're called in, the, in North America. And I had a little mini pair, a little tiny pair. And I put them on in the morning and they snapped on so perfectly. There's little indentations in the stub of a lever. They went in there and they fitted on. They were ergonomically perfect. I put a cable tie around them so they wouldn't ping off. And these vice grips, mold grips, worked perfectly all the way back home, put the proper lever on to pass through an MOT, and then put the mold grips back on because they look so cool. They <laughs> were priceless. I would thoroughly recommend traveling, and I will in future, with at least two pairs. And I often see photos on Facebook of people bodging uh, those things that snap, brake levers or foot brake levers, gear changes, and those things with mold grips. They have far more uses than just gripping a round-off nut or bolt. They were phenomenal, a total lifesaver. And uh, yes, at all, but used in a non-tool capacity. They were brilliant. I just had to put that in there. <laughs> that's a good tip you, you can't yep, see this Graham, but things. i'm nodding yep, yeah me too if, yep. if couldn't travel without him the, 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 there's a the, the whole story is in eureka and there's even a picture of it fitted to the brake lever and I, it was a sad day when i actually had to replace it permanently and those mole grips had to come off because man they were and they were they were ergonomically perfect they were comfortable to grab i mean there was no <laughs> hardships about using them <laughs> <laughs> oh, the other one is stainless steel bailing wire. Got to have some of that. That comes in so handy. Mm -hmm. Does all kinds of things. I was and surprised nobody said zip ties or duct tape. Um, so, well, everybody oh, knows well, that's zip ties. Yeah. Duct tape, duh. That's just yeah, so exactly. obvious. Sorry, Jim, <laughs> but it's too obvious. Uh, how, yeah, how about this one, though? Take an old inner tube and cut one inch or half inch or whatever you want wide strips so that you've got a rubber band. Only it's not yes. a cheap, crappy little rubber band, yeah, but yeah. a serious, strong oh, rubber band that yeah, do exactly a job. Toss right. 10 of those in your kit. It's, yeah. They're fantastic. Oh, you can like do that. just about anything. Yeah. Always and do uh, take one from a, off a car, too, because those are nice big ones, really heavy duty. And actually, shoes. if you don't have anywhere to put them, I wrap around my side stand, and that's where I store my bits of used in, in a tube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that'll work. There's all kinds of things you can do with those. I've seen subframes held back together with just inner tube. Tremendously strong. And stainless steel bailing wire. I used that. Um, guy knocked over my bike in, I don't know, I think it was Ecuador or something, way back in the middle of nowhere in Ecuador. He knocked the bike over. The windscreen hit uh, a wall, 
and pop, snapped in half. So stainless steel bailing wire, a few little drilled holes, and it's t cut or wired back up. I, it's never been replaced. That was 1997, and it's still there, and this windscreen is still solid. I can take it off. It's solid. It's perfect. It's just dandy. No need to replace. Stainless bailing wire. It doesn't rust. It's wonderful. And some JB weld would have went good with that. Super <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> would have been better, but stainless steel bailing wire. I also use stainless steel bailing wire for um, all my nuts and bolts, uh, drain plugs, and important critical bolts are drilled, and I safety wire things. Wow. Yeah. That's the old coming in in your grain. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yes, it's really I, confess it is. I confess it is, but if you've ever watched somebody's drain plug fall out when they're riding ahead of you and watch the stream of oil running down the road, and the guy's an expert mechanic, you know, it's too easy to over-tighten drain plugs. Wow. I mean, I used to run a shop, and the number of times people would come in with strip drain plugs, it makes you want to cry. Who was following you, watching your oil plugs. drain? I was watching his bike <laughs> drain, <laughs> trying to avoid the puddle. <laughs> it was scary. Um, no, that's true. It, that, is, really that is something that happens a lot, isn't it? I mean, people tend to strip oh, their, their oil drain plugs for sure. Yeah. But it, you're supposed to just crush the crush washer and stop. That's it. I mean, there's even a torque setting given for it. Mm -hmm. And I carry a torque wrench, by the way, for travel. I've got a real small one that works really well. Um, but I drain, I, I safety wire my drain plug, so I don't worry about it. I, I know that if I get it reasonably tight, it's not going to come undone. So I don't ever over tighten my drain plugs. And it's not a big I deal. have before now gone to drain my oil and the drain plug has been finger tight. Oh my God. <laughs> I did that at the right time. So, uh, yeah, having a talk wrench will probably be a good idea. Do you take enough crush washers with you then, Grant, for every yes. oil change you're going to do on the road? Do you? And uh, on an R80GS, it's a royal pain in the butt because there's about 27 other things. It's ridiculous. Right. Uh, but yes, Grant, I carry um, at least two sets. We, we, we started off carrying um, full sets, but actually after a while we were given a tip, and this was given to us um, by um, a guy who was working out at the scruffiest, dirtiest, filthiest um, work yard in Kathmandu where they were um, repairing vehicles that well, should have been dead a long time ago. And um, he got a blowtorch out, and um, when he was dealing with crush washers, he just blowtorched the, the crush washers. They sort of sprung back into life again, and then he carried on using them. And yeah, I that just works did really that well. That well that's yeah, that that's what I do well with copper washers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, most of the ones on BMWs are copper anyway, so that was um, why we just carried on doing that. Yeah, you get the... Um, um, copper crush washers. I was just saying that the, the copper ones, you can, anne you can anneal them to soften them, heat them up and let them cool. But the um, uh, steel ones, which are a silver color, they don't do that. That doesn't work. You've got to replace them. It's the only hope. So um, moving on to plugs, I think for plugs, we're going to have to start with Shirley because she feels left out at this point because she hasn't been, oh. <laughs> she hasn't been interested in what's been going on. No, it was fascinating. <gasps> <laughs> Just like to give first up a shout out to someone who I know has been on Adventure Rider Radio, um, uh, Australian writer Stuart Ball. Stewie yeah. wanted to break the record of crossing, uh, doing a double crossing of the Simpson Desert um, on his own, unassisted, 
the record is 23 hours and some minutes. 40, 43 minutes um, and 2,000 sand dunes. He's, he tried it about four days ago and uh, didn't succeed in breaking the record. So 20-odd hours ago, he did it again. So wow. in the last six in the last week, he's done the Simpson Desert four times. Uh, he still didn't break the record, but he's done like 4,000 sand dunes in a week. Um, well, he's got he the record for number of crossings. Well, yeah, indeed. indeed. And he does it to raise money for um, SIDS, which is Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And uh, he's just a mighty, mighty young man and a fabulous motorcyclist. So just to give him a big shout out for... She's crossing the Simpson Desert once isn't bad, but doing it four times in less than a week is amazing. And I'm, I'm going to try and get uh, Stewie to come up to the Rises Unlimited meeting in uh, Jindabyne and uh, cool. that was do a great. presentation on it. I've got yeah, to talk to him a few times. He's, he's always he has, good. But yeah, he has, and he does that crossing of the Australia, but uh, the Simpson Desert, particularly um, the way he's done it, great. He did it on that CCM 450, Grant. Oh, did he? Good. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Good to hear. Yes. His girlfriend, Sarah Taylor, has also um, ridden across the desert on her own in the last couple of weeks. So they really are an incredible couple. So, and while we're speaking of incredible women, I would like to give a plug to uh, Michelle Lanfair. Is that how you pronounce her name, Grant? Yeah. Um, who we yeah, met so. at Horizons in Ontario back in 2012. And she's since ridden from the US down to Ushuaia and back. And she's just published a book called The Butterfly Rouge. And it's um, available through Amazon, and I'm waiting for my copy to arrive now. So um, it will be a great read. Her blog was really interesting. And um, Shirley, yeah. I am so glad that you did that. Um, you just pinched my plug. So both of us oh, are thinking on exactly the same lines. Sorry, Sam. Um, I can't wait to see this book. She is such a lovely person. She is and indeed a great yeah. girl. Yep. Yeah, yeah we're hoping to get her back um, to the meeting this this fall. Excellent. Okay, I'm done now. Okay, and we had Michelle on the show here some time ago. I'm just I was trying to think of when you're saying that when we had her on here. It was, it was quite a while ago, actually. It might have been a year and a half or something like that ago. But the butterfly route, that'll be an interesting one. Um, so for next, for plugs, shall we... Brian, do you have anything separate? No, 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 no it was the same thing. Stewie Ball, actually. Okay, okay. What do you have, Grant? Um, nothing specific, just the usual. Travelers meetings coming up. We just had the Virginia one last week, which was great. Went over really well. We had a good time. That was our first one that we've gone to this year. And it was really nice to get out and talk to all the people and have um, hear their stories. It's just some amazing stories coming up. And we had one guy, um, uh, Brent, who has who left from Ontario meeting last year and came back this year and told his story. And that was really you know, very... Very cool, uh, kind of a, a, around the circle. He felt he was completing a circle and, a, and passing on what he had been inspired by, and now he was able to inspire others with a really great presentation. Yeah, that's he's a, a super kind chap, of cool. isn't he? Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's a good guy. Um, we're looking forward to getting him to some more of the events and doing some more talks. And we've got, coming up, May 18 to 21, like, oh, my Lord, it's, it's 10 days away, Indonesia. This was a meeting that we started up this year. This would be the first year for it. And we thought, oh, this is going to be a little one. It's not going to be a great turnout. They've got over 220 people coming to it. Whew. We're blown away. I mean, Indonesia, you don't think of as a big motorcycle travelers 
place. I mean, how many people travel from there? But apparently there's a lot of people who really want to do it. And they may be doing it on small bikes and doing it on the cheap. But they want to go. So that's going to be really cool. So if you're in Indonesia right now, head for Sumbawa. It's going to be very cool. Um, and we've got Germany coming up the weekend after that for the Germany summer meeting. That's always a good one. And, of course, Hub UK is coming June 15 to 18. And then there's Russia is the weekend after that and so on. So there's lots coming. We've got 27 events this year. And don't anybody say it. I know. We're crazy. It's too many. That's a lot. We're doing 27 events this year. We're not going to go to them all, unfortunately. We really, really would like to go to them all, but it's absolutely impossible. It's just too much. You're, you're a brunette, really, Grant, aren't you? Um, not, uh, not great at all. Uh, actually, I was I was dark, dark brunette. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm pulling out my hair out of the top. That's what happened. I just keep pulling out my hair. That's that's my story, and I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> your bed might be too short. See if your head's rubbing the headboard. That's what it is, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, that's it. And uh, we've got the humps are coming up as well, too. So we've got lots of lots of stuff happening. So go to the website, horizonsunlimited.com slash events. See what's in your area. There's bound to be something. We're on five continents this year. And I've lost count of how many countries. Very neat. Uh, so lots I, happening. That's just what I was going to say. I was going to say the, the website address. You mentioned the hum. You're talking about the one in B.C.? We've got, ah, well, for those who haven't heard about the HUM, Horizons Unlimited Mountain Madness. This is not our usual travelers' meetings. This is all about getting on your bike and riding. Let's see how good your navigation is. The key to winning the HUM, which is a very competitive event for teams of two to four riders, is you need to have good navigation because we give you a map and a book, and we might let you use your GPS depending on various things. And you have to find a bunch of points out in the woods. Think orienteering on your motorcycle. Lots of fun, great riding. We pre-ride it all. Um, make sure that it's excellent riding. You're going to have a good time. And there's prizes to be won, trophies, the whole bit. So lots of fun. And we've got one coming up in British Columbia. It'll be our second year in BC with the Hum Monashies, July 28th to 30th. And Hum Appalachians in Maryland, Western Maryland. August 11 to 13, and we've got one in Spain as well, which we've been running for many years. Started with the hum in Spain in, uh, in uh, 2005, and that's in October. And a new one coming for April of next year that I think I can just announce now. For those of you in Arizona, I think Arizona, that's going to be a good one. Hmm. So lots happening. Check it out. Go for a ride. Get out and ride your bike, and that's what the hums are all about. And website? Horizonsunlimited.com slash events will do or slash hum. H-U-M-M. Horizons Unlimited Mountain Madness. Very nice. Boy, you do have a full plate this year. Oh, very full. Yes, yes. We're kind of looking at it and thinking, oh, my Lord, how are we, we going to do this? How are we going to do this? What are we going to go to? <laughs> We've got to cherry pick the events that we can actually manage to get to. Are, are so you going to the be... Ontario one? Probably, yeah. but I'm not guaranteeing not that yet. It. That's September 7 to 10 in Ontario. Oh, and on that one, for those of you who haven't heard yet, we have, speaking of CCM, CCM will be there with their GP450 to demo, and Honda will be there with a full series of demo bikes, and we've got Simon and Lisa Thomas, to Ride the World, will be there doing presentations. Very nice. So that's going to be cool. Okay, so who's next? Sam, what do you have? Oh, 
Well, for the last few um, programmes, I've been um, talking quite a lot at the end of the show about the tour that um, I'm actually on now. Um, and by the time this comes out, um, I will have been at Overland Expo in Flagstaff. Um, they had snow there this morning. That's um, going to be good. Uh, but hopefully that will have cleared away. But anyway, that's all setting up. They've got a new venue and um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that all settles in. And from um, Overland Expo, I'm, I'm scooting straight up to um, BMW Motorcycles of Western Oregon in Teagard, which is just to the south of um, Portland in Oregon. And uh, that's going to be um, a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. And um, my next BMW gig is in Spokane, which I'm still probably not pronouncing right. <laughs> and then I'm down to um, ADV Moto Tech in Glendale in California. So I'm here for seven weeks. And I tell you what, it's just so nice to be back in the United States. Um, I've only been here for, what, three days? And I've, I've been smiling pretty much every day. It's, it's very good. It's nice to be back. And are you camping as you're going along and, and doing your route, or are you staying in hotels? It depends on where I am and what I'm doing. Um, the first couple of days I've been staying with a friend of a friend. Um, she picked me up from the airport and made me really welcome, which has been fantastic because, you know, jet lag sucks, doesn't it, when you've then got to be going and sitting on a bike. Um, I'm staying with friends here for a couple of days. Um, and after Expo, um, the first three nights, I'm going to stay in um, cheap hotels because I've only got three days to get between Expo and Portland. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to do that. But after that, um, it's pretty much camping. And um, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, Oregon and Washington, North California, drop-dead gorgeous. Um, and so many little spots to tuck yourself away in. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to be smiling a lot over the next, well, six and a half weeks. And I, I hope that listeners to... Um, Adventure Rider Radio Roar and Adventure Rider Radio will actually come along to some of the presentations. It's um, I've been meeting quite a few um, listeners in the UK, and it's really nice to meet the people um, that are listening into the show. And uh, even Graham's mad sense of humour seems to go down really well. Even <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Sam, I thought you were going to mention about your your new audio book. Well, if I may, then I would be honoured to be able to do so. Thank you. Um, my fourth book, um, Tortius to Totems, has only just been released as um, an audio book. And um, I'm really pleased. It's been out for about um, a week and a half now. And I'm um, absolutely delighted with the feedback that from um, the early um, buyers of it. And um, it's available on audio um, from Audible and from iTunes. And over the next couple of weeks, It'll be um, available from, I'm told, another four or five sources. So, um, yeah, it's going to be easy to find. But um, Tortillas to Totems takes the listener through Mexico, United States, Canada, um, and up towards Alaska, and then back down through Canada and across the States. And um, uh, one of the magazine reviews said, um, this may sound like um, an ordinary story in familiar lands. Um, be assured it's not. And I was kind of chuffed with that because... Uh, riding through North America um, was just so full of surprises and sidetracks. Um, I arrived in um, North America, not really sure if I wanted to be here. You know, I really liked developing world countries and I thought it was going to be easy, um, too easy, um, amongst other things. And um, when I got here, just um, the hospitality and the riding and the landscape and the history and 
um, it just blew me away. And that's one of the reasons that I love coming back to North America. It's, and, um, yeah, and it's really nice to be back. And that means that that's all of your books now are available in audio format. That's right. Um, yeah, absolutely. The first one, um, Into Africa, that was just such a huge gamble. You know, I didn't know whether anybody would be interested in audio books and even whether I could. Um, but people liked it and were saying, well, when's the next one coming out? So um, they've been um, slowly being recorded. And I owe a huge thanks to Kite Studio in Cambridge and the UK for um, taking on board uh, a novice narrator and uh, working with me on this. Um, they've been absolutely fantastic. Oh, and the music, by the way, um, on Tortillas to Totems, I must give these, these guys a mention, Al Marconi and um, Steve McGill. They're both absolutely brilliant, fun people. They're good mates. They're really amazing musicians. Um, if any listeners ever see them, get a chance to listen to them, buy their CDs, then do. These guys have given me their um, music to use free of charge on the chapters. Um, just because... They like the whole concept of overlanding and listening to stories. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much, guys. And if, for those who don't know, you're the narrator on it. So that's kind of nice to hear Sam's voice while you're listening to Sam's story. I think it's very cool. Thank you. Well, on to um, Graham. Graham, do you, do you need some more, more ice for your drink before we go into this? No, I think I'm okay, but I do need some more drink. This is run out. Better cut that up. <laughs> so, what do you? Um, have? Well, what time is it, Graham? It's nearly nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> what am I going to do with the rest of my day? <laughs> I don't know, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> uh, right. Well. Um, Going to, back to the, the shout-out thing, I will give a little shout-out, and I want to give a shout-out to a guy called Lejos Toth, and he lives in Colorado, and he has ordered a second box set of my books, which is not only spectacular as a repeat customer, because the second box set is actually the same as the first box set, but as independent authors... People probably think they re we really like it when they say, I loved your book and I lent it to everybody in the bike club. <laughs> oh, I hate but that. When, <laughs> yes. Legal. Would you go up to Axel Rose and say, loved your album, burn 20 copies of it? <laughs> yeah. Now, we have the same thing with the DVDs too. So Lejos lent a copy or gave a copy of my books to a mate of his and decided that his own stock needed replenishing and bought another box set. So nice one, Lejos. On. You get it. I really appreciate yep. that. Good Thank on you him. so much. Um, cool. And as for plugs, just a tiny one, really, um, along the same lines as Grant. Uh, we are having our Horizons Unlimited mini-meet in Motor Camp in Bulgaria the first weekend of July. Um there seems to be a lot of people going, but I still have two spare rooms left and an infinite garden of camping space where I'm pretty sure you won't need any lubricant. So if you want to come to Motor Camp Mini Meet, you can welcome the camp. Cool. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Next year. <laughs> okay. So you don't have to worry about lubricant, but you've got a place to stay at Graham Field's place. That's kind of cool. I mean, that's, uh, that, you're really opening yourself up for a party here. Oh, imagine. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Just hope this doesn't turn out like Do we all want to go down to the, see the presentation so do we just stay in the hot tub and drink champagne? <laughs> hot tub? You've got a hot yeah. tub? Yeah. Good grief. When did that happen? That's May. I've had it for a year now. 
Oh, right. Oh, I mean, we know where the party is. Have you broken the ice on it yet? I was thinking of broadcasting it this morning and from it this morning, but because the dawn chorus of the birds is quite loud, it felt nah. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be that would be the end of you. The mic would fall into the water. <laughs> so exactly how did he die again? Well, he was doing <laughs> ARR raw. <laughs> what a rock and roll and way to go. Said he... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was in there last summer. I'd gone in there last summer at the end of, of the end of a night, and I thought I'm just going to jump in the hot tub and have a whiskey. And I went in there, and the whiskey was sitting in my hand, and I fell asleep. And the next thing I know, I said, "Oh, where's my glass gone?" And I, and I woke up all like, <laughs> like disorientated. Anyway, I went to bed in the morning. I went down the hot tub, smelt of whiskey, and the glass was in the bottom of the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> There must be some sort of warning label on that hot tub. I don't think you're supposed to stay in it very long. Well, it's when you fall asleep, you kind of lose track of time. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a really comfortable hot tub. We'll have to check it out. (laughs) So so any any of um, Graham's future guests that are listening to this show will know that um, when they're given a straw on arrival, um, why that is. Because Graham will have fallen asleep a lot more times by then, and actually the hot tub is going to be more whiskey than water. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine what else is in there. But I guess that wraps things up for this episode. (laughs) And uh, the the after show party, no doubt, is going to be at Graham's because he's open having lots of guests, and he has a hot tub. And he's awake. Swinging costumes optional. Sorry, you said swinging costumes optional? <laughs> uh, yeah, just put your keys in the flower pot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, everyone. Till next time. Okay. Thanks, hey, Jim. Cheers, Jim. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Cheers. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And before I go, I'd like to ask you to consider dropping by our website and helping the show by clicking on the donate button. Remember, anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention here on ARR Raw, our way of showing our appreciation. And hey, you know what? If you don't want to donate, that's fine too. We love having you as listeners, so so don't feel bothered by that. And it'll, it'll always be free as long as we can continue to put this show out. So enjoy. And thanks very much. Special thanks to my co-host, Graham Field, who lives in Bulgaria and has some great adventure motorcycle books for you at www.gramfield.co.uk. Sam Manicom, who lives in the UK, also an author, great adventure books and articles at www.sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks, also some great travel books they have out and some articles on moto travel. Find them at www.aussiesoverland.com.au. And of course, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum to connect travelers from around the world. They also put on hub meets around the world as well as the hum you heard them talk about on this one. See a list of their events and things going on at www.horizonsunlimited.com And of course, special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next month.